Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout Podcast with me, Emily Einelander. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing. Today, we're joined by Claudia Rabasa, a communications staffer for the Organization for Transformative Works. The Organization for Transformative Works, or OTW, is a nonprofit organization established by fans in 2007 to serve the interests of fans by providing access to and preserving the history of fan works and fan culture in its myriad forms. They believe that fan works are transformative and that transformative works are legitimate. They are proactive and innovative in protecting and defending their work from commercial exploitation and legal challenges. They preserve their fanish economy, values, and creative expression by protecting and nurturing fellow fans, their work, their commentary, their history, and their identity while providing the broadest possible access to fanish activity for all fans. The Archive of Our Own offers a non-commercial and non-profit central hosting place for fan works using open source archiving software. Their other major projects include FanLore, a fandom wiki devoted to preserving the history of transformative fan works and the fandoms from which they have arisen, Legal Advocacy, committed to protecting and defending fan works from commercial exploitation and legal challenge, Open Doors, which offers shelter to at-risk fanish projects, Transformative Works and Cultures, a peer-reviewed academic journal that seeks to promote scholarship on fan works and practices. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I am a communications staffer with the Organization for Transformative Works. Um, I have now been working for them for 11 years. Um, so <laughs> it's been quite a while. Um, the communications uh, committee itself uh, basically works to um, mediate uh, between the organization and the public. So, for example, we tend to answer, you know, the contact form questions or we redirect them if it's, you know, uh, something that really another committee should be handling. Uh, we generate news posts, uh, newsletters, an annual report. Um, and uh, we hold events, too, where fans can interact and also get to know um, uh, people who volunteer in different ways. Uh, we do that through different methods. Um, International Fan Works Day is coming up in February, and we always host uh, a big event for that. And uh, we also run a series called uh, Five Things an OTW Volunteer Said. And that is basically a Q&A with um, volunteers from different parts of the organization so that uh, people can learn both what you know, people do in particular committees and areas of the organization, as well as, you know, getting to associate particular people with different types of work. Wow, that's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we do tend to do a lot of variety of things. Yeah. Um, cool. So I wanted to kind of do an icebreaker question, I assume, as someone working where you work, that you you have a, an affinity for fandom as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to ask what your favorite ship was. Well, uh, there's actually a couple of different ones um, because my latest fandom is um, Star Wars, which is kind of funny because, you know, I was I always really enjoyed Star Wars for a long time, but I only kind of really got fanish about it in the last couple of years. Um, and I don't actually have a favorite pairing for them, but um I've also been involved in like the Merlin fandom. And so that was, you know, Merlin and Arthur. Um, I really like Killing Eve. 
Um, so uh, definitely I like the main pairing in that one as well. Um, and I liked uh, Loki and Tony Stark in the MCU. Um, so that, boy, that's a fandom with so, so many ships of all kinds. Because <laughs> it's, you know, it's just so huge with so many characters. But um, that was uh, that was the first one that I really started reading in extensively. And um, I, I think it's still a favorite there, although I also really like uh, Loki and Jane Foster. So I'm kind of excited to see where the next Thor movie is going to take us because Jane is finally coming back with a sizable role. Cool. I love that. And clearly you were very, very into this. I, I love that someone who is like working here is, is you know, a true believer. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Everybody is. <laughs> Believe me, everybody is. Um, well, in that case, I'm going to ask you another icebreaker question. What's one of your favorite AO3 tags? You know, the funny thing is I don't actually tend to use tags when I'm searching. Um, and, and it's because I don't actually do a lot of searching on the archive. I read from recommendations a lot. Okay. Um, I read from recommendations. I read from summaries um, because um, you can sign up to tag feeds from the archive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, in my blog site, I use Dreamwith. And um, one of the great things about that site, I think, is that you can create RSS feeds for all sorts of things. And so um, I have uh, stuff coming in from different AO3 um, feeds for the, either of the uh, ship pairing or uh, the whole fandom. For example, like I have the AO3 feed for all of Merlin's content because it's not, I mean, it's still very active. I mean, there are dozens of stories that are published every day, but you know, it's not like a hundred <laughs> in a day. Yeah. So it's, it's still, it's more manageable, but um, so I just, you know, scan through those as I go by. And if I see something that's like a longer, because I, I prefer longer works. Mm -hmm. um, so if I see something that's like over 5,000 words and I like the summary, it's like, go over, click download, you know, and, and then I may get to it in three months. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I don't tend to use the tags a lot, to be honest. Uh, I just mostly scan the feeds or else, you know, I see somebody's recommendation and I go over and download it. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not a big tag user. Yeah, I'm not really either. I just kind of stay in in the fandom and just see what comes up, but it's really small, so you don't get a lot every day. I I saw in a Discord the other day people kind of getting into a whole thing about whether they read entire work or read by chapter by chapter, mm. and it all had to do with what kind of work they did and how their internet access was and how much their data plan was. So they're yes. like, yeah, they're like, if I'm going to be away from something, I'm going to download the entire thing or I'm going to open the page to the entire thing so I don't lose connectivity or whatever. Yeah, occasionally um, I'll, I'll um, I, like I said, mostly I read longer works. And so I download it because, you know, I'm not going to sit there and read right. it, you know, at that time when I come across the story. But um, sometimes I'll, I'll have uh, there will be some shorter works or something sometimes because it's somebody I know has written them, you know, and I want to be able to read that. And um, but then what I'll do is I'll put a, a mark for later. I'll use the mark for later button instead, you know, of downloading it because, you know, if it's like a thousand words or something, it's just not really worth downloading. Um, but, uh, but yeah, because I read offline. I mean, I'm in front of the computer most of the day as it is. I don't want to be in front of it anymore. Um, so I have an e-reader and then I download, you know, stuff to, to put on the e-reader and read it that way. Cause you can download an EPUB and, um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's wonderful. The options we have. Yeah. It's fantastic. So I'm going to just jump into these questions about the work you do and the work sure. your organization does. 
Um, so what makes AO3 in particular unique from other fan fiction websites? Well, as we've just been discussing, I think if you ask the users, you're going to get a variety of answers. Um, but for myself, I see the AO3 as serving three main purposes. Um, to empower fans, uh, to keep control of their works, um, to offer a non-commercial site for long-term preservation of fan works, and um, to be broadly inclusive in terms of accessibility, language, and content. Um, I think there are other fan archives out there which also do one or even all of these things, but I think most are neither multi-fandom uh, nor are they designed for large-scale use. Um, however, probably the biggest factor that sets the AO3 apart is that it's part of the OTW. So it's part of an ecosystem, if you will, of projects designed primarily for preservation and informational purposes and to serve the needs of fans. Right. Um, and so that's that's lots and lots of information all in one place um, <laughs> and as a hub off of a particular organization. Just, you know, I, I don't know how many works are, are coming up every day and how many users there are. Um, I mean, I know that when I wanted to join and set up an account, I had to get an invitation um, because there was a long queue of people joining. Um, mm -hmm. So how do your staff and volunteers stay organized with everything that needs to be done to maintain this enormous scale of users and works? Um, there's no one answer to that because it varies a lot on a committee by committee basis. Mm -hmm. um, so this leads me into a little bit of a too long didn't read <laughs> about how the OTW yeah, is yeah. structured. Um, while uh, most of our volunteers have only one role in one committee, um, some of them have volunteered either simultaneously or sequentially in multiple committees, um, each of which you might consider uh, the corporate equivalent of a department, which focuses on a particular area. Uh, so if we consider the OTW board a committee, uh, then we have 19 of them. And these can be broken down into two types, uh, committees that focus exclusively on one of our projects and committees that serve the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so we have fan lore, transformative works and cultures, and open doors committees. Um, the archive has five different committees um, that work for it, um, support, policy and abuse, tag wrangling, AO3 documentation, and um, the sort of guiding committee, uh, accessibility, design, and technology. And then we have the odd duck, which is legal, um, because it is both the legal advocacy project but it also consults with all the other parts of the OTW where legal issues might be involved. So it serves as you know, the advisory committee as well. Um, then on the organizational support side, we have uh, volunteers and recruiting, which serves as our HR group. Um, translation, which is needed by various other committees. Um, communications, which I'm a part of. Uh, strategic planning. Um, elections, which runs our board elections. Uh, finance development and membership, which coordinates our fundraising, uh, webs, which runs our website, and systems, which is our IT group. Um, so these committees might also have subgroups. Um, our translation committee is a particularly good example of that. Uh, each language has its own team of volunteers and its own head of that team. 
Uh, and then there's a team of supervisory staff uh, for the whole committee that coordinates work. Um, so they do recruitment and training. They see that documentation is completed. They do other administrative tasks, uh, such as liaising with other committees. Uh, they communicate with the board and so on. Um, other committees might have a flatter organization. Uh, while they all have a chair and ideally co-chairs, um, they may have all the staff performing essentially the same functions. So the chairs might be additionally responsible for administrative work, reporting to the board, et cetera, but otherwise you're doing the same work as the rest of the committee. Um, and then on my own committee, we do a mix of things. Uh, we have two subgroups, uh, one of which runs our Fan Hackers project. And we also have several people who serve as moderators for our social media outlets. And then we have somebody responsible for our internal and external newsletters and the annual report. Uh, we have someone responsible for events planning, someone who coordinates most of, our, most of our news content and so on. So while some people may fill more than one role within the committee, there are a bunch of distinct job titles which reflect all the different tasks that we carry out. Um, our board itself also doesn't work like an outside board at most organizations. Instead, they essentially serve as executives for the OTW. Um, so they're the ones empowered to do things such as authorize release of funds, confirm appointment of committee chairs, uh, sign legal documents, and they also have approved committee level projects and proposals for new activities. Um, and, you know, they help coordinate uh, among different committees. Um, as of this month, we have over a thousand volunteers uh, who work across all the time zones. Wow. Uh, these volunteers might spend a few hours a week on their tasks, which they can do on their own schedules, uh, or they might be doing 20 hours or so of being on call for their committee, or uh, they might have variable but extensive schedules during different work at different hours because of the demands of certain tasks. Um, there are at least three committees I can think of that have work that's very labor intensive during certain months and then very quiet throughout the rest of the year. So on the individual level, the experiences can be very different for each volunteer. Um, and on the committee level, the workload and organizational structure can be different. Um, the one thing I think we all have in common is that we've been an entirely virtual organization since we were first founded in 2007. So everyone works online with their own equipment. Um, and this can definitely have its challenges, but certainly over these last two years, it's been quite an asset to have an entirely remote workforce. You're looking at people who are complaining about Zoom like amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is we don't actually use audio or video um, for anything we do. It's entirely text-based. And um, you know, you uh, were talking earlier about um, issues. You know, you were talking about the conversation on Discord about um, how people, you know, may have bandwidth limitations or um, you know, limitations on their data and so forth. And um, that's one of the reasons why, because remember, we were first organized back in 2007, right. um, that we do it that way, that, you know, everything is very text-based. And it's because we have had, you know, volunteers throughout the world, really, um, who may or may not actually have access to great internet. You know, um, they may only be able to do it, you know, while at school, or they might be able to do it, you know, from their workplace, or, you know, um, they might have limited hours, limited access, limited time online. And so, you know, um, being able to make things um, 
low cost in terms of bandwidth and data uh, is really important, you know, that everybody has an equal chance to, to participate. Wow. That is, that is a massive scale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty big organization. I mean, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's changed a lot over the years in terms of how many people are involved, but I mean, even from the beginning, the number of things that are being done um, is a lot. (laughs) It really is a lot. I mean, we, we have volunteers who have, you know, kind of worked in their own pocket of the organization for, you know, maybe a couple of years even, and they don't know all the different things that go on in the organization. I mean, they could if they wanted to look into it, but, you know, they might not really just run into it. I mean, it sounds impossible to like know everything that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely get through my, um, you know, <laughs> the the uh, tag I'm following. <laughs> you got to you got to set your priorities. Yeah. Um, so why do people need an invitation to join? Well, you know, I've always personally thought that the term invite is misleading um, because all it is, it's just a metered sign up queue. Um, but then if you say sign up, you know, that makes might make people assume that they'll do it all in one step when in fact they have to wait for an email and then use a link in the email to start the sign up process, you know, and then they have to confirm and all of that. So um, usually this email arrives in about 48 hours, but at different points in our history, it has taken a long time. And on some occasions, it's been shut off temporarily. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually the reason it continues to be used. Um, it's a way of protecting the site, um, both from spammers and from a mass influx of users that could put too much strain on it. Um, I'm not sure what the current limit is. It, it's been changed a number of times. Um, it might be 2,500 invites per day. Mm. Uh, I know that a lot of the invites don't end up getting used right away. Um, sometimes, you know, they end up in people's spam folders and they never find them. Um, sometimes they hang on to the email, but then they use it much later because maybe they're participating in an event and that's why they needed an account. Uh, you know, maybe they change their minds. I don't know. <laughs> but um, the most noticeable, notable incident, notable and noticeable <laughs> incident was in 2012. Um, at that time, the fanfiction.net site began another content purge. Mm-hmm. And we'd been around for two and a half years by then, but we were still quite a small site by comparison. Um, but being another multi-fandom site, a lot of the fans checked us out for the first time. And many began trying to sign up to transfer their works over. And AO3 nearly went down. And it ran slowly for some time while the site management team investigated what they could do. Um, Search filtering was disabled for months. And the invite queue was temporarily halted because signed in users put more demands on the site than the visitors do. Um, And it took about six months before we were able to offer accounts to the backlog of sign up requests. And then another month to reopen the queue with a higher daily limit. But that incident proved the value of having that daily limit and keeping us running. Um, we've gone through enormous growth over the years, and especially in these last two years. And, you know, <laughs> it's possible that last March might have been another, well, I say last March is now 2020, right? <laughs> um, but that March, you know, might have been another avalanche, you know, had that queue not been in place, um, sure. you know, restricting people from suddenly piling in because, you know, we, we got a huge bump. I mean, we've published... Um, a news post with a graph about how much of a surge we got, you know, between February and April of, of 2020. 
I mean, that's when I joined. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A lot of people did, you know, Uh, a lot of people who had been using the site for a long time, but had never signed up for an account started doing it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and like I said, that's the reason for the meter, you know, is that, you know, we keep the pace steady and we don't have, you know, like this just overwhelming number of people suddenly trying to sign up and bringing the site down. That makes a ton of sense. Oh, you must have had a lot of cranky people when it was a six month delay. <laughs> oh, oh, it was, I mean, it was a huge thing because, you know, it wasn't just the, the sign up thing, but what was uh, people complained about even more was the search function. Oh. I mean, you could only search by tags because you could not, you know, filter your results, a search result in any way. So you basically had to navigate the site by tags. And uh, of course, especially for the people who were coming from fanfiction.net, you know, the many thousands who came over, um, you know, weren't used to searching that way because they don't use tags there. So it was both, you know, frustrating for people who had already used the site, knew that they did have a search function and the people who were coming over and it was like, well, how do you find anything here? You know? So yeah, it was, it was not a great time. I, I, you know, we, we cannot thank enough all the people who worked on AO3 <laughs> at that time for their efforts and getting things, you know, back up and running. Yeah. Survived to read another day. <laughs> yes. And grow. I mean, it, it, the thing is, you know, I mean, we'd, we've been growing all along. I mean, every year there was growth, but I mean, the, the steady upward trend began in 2013 after that incident, you know, it just, it just started going straight up after that and it's never stopped. Um, so possibly for one of the reasons you've brought up before, there's a lot of freedom for people, um, to post whatever type of, I mean, could I go so far as to say whatever type of content they want? There's stuff on there that would not be allowed in the Amazon terms of service, for instance, (laughs) (laughs) like many things. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, definitely um, part of the attraction on the site is exactly the fact that we do have such an open content policy. And I mean, it was, um, I I mentioned earlier, you know, that there are certainly other archives that do some of the things that we do. Um, Not as many of them were multi-fandom. Most of the big archives, and there were some very large archives, you know, way bigger than we were at the time that we launched, you know, uh, because we opened with, you know, a few thousand works. And, um, you know, at that time, there had already been, I mean, the X-Files Gossamer Project, I mean, I think they had 50,000 works, and that was like back in the 90s. You know, fanfiction.net had six million at that point. And um, the, uh, um, I'm trying to remember which uh, Harry Potter um, uh, archive it was that, you know, had like 12,000 works. And I mean, you know, or I, or I think it was 20,000 works actually. But um, so, yeah, I mean, there were single fandom archives with an awful lot of works. But um, especially if you were a fan work creator that, you know, created for a bunch of different fandoms, it could be very frustrating because, you know, you'd have to post your work in all sorts of different places in order to get it seen. And being able to have, you know, one account where pretty much anything you wrote, regardless of what fandom it was, regardless of what ship it was, regardless of whether it was explicit or not explicit, et cetera, that you could all put it all in one place. I mean, that was, um, that was a change. That was Mm -hmm. definitely a change. Mm -hmm. And you can use different names within your single account to post things. So yes, kind of- yes, exactly. You could, if, if you were known by different names and different fandoms, you could, you know, essentially use all of your, your usual names in your same account. 
So what level of content moderation or review um, is from staff and volunteers and uh, how much is just left up to the users to guide content with one another? <laughs> well, so I asked our legal committee chair, um, Betsy Rosenblatt, uh, to respond to this because okay. legal was responsible for creating and um, consulting on the content policy we have at AO3. So these words I'm, I'm, uh, are her words I'm going to read next. Okay. Um, she said the OTW and AO3 are explicitly built on a policy of maximum inclusivity. And the AO3 is simply a platform for users to post their fan works. That means that the OTW does not control, screen, or monitor what people post. Um, the AO3 does have terms of service that specify what sorts of content is not allowed. Uh, for example, people are not allowed to post illegal material, harassing material, non-fan works, or reproductions of entire copyrighted works. Um, like nearly all internet platforms, the AO3 relies on a report-based system. AO3 takes violations of its terms of service very seriously and incredibly, <laughs> incredibly hardworking team of volunteer policy and abuse personnel review complaints and enforce the terms of service in response to reports. How have those rules adapted over time? Um, I know that legal has... Um, uh, has reviewed things at different points in time. Um, and, and as it happens, uh, because I work in communications, I know that the um, policy and abuse team is right now uh, preparing some posts that they are going to make later, um, probably in a couple of months, because they want to get it translated and that takes time. And, and right now, translation is very busy with some other things that they're working on. Um, but they are planning to actually make some posts about common violations um, that they see at the archive. And um, I'm assuming they're going to explain some things about you know, how you can not be in violation of those things and avoid those problems. Um, but I can't say anything more about it because I think that the posts have literally not been written yet. Um, but I just happened to know about it because we had a talk about scheduling and so forth uh, uh, last week. And so um, I know that that's coming. But um, in terms of you know, how the policy has adapted, um, you know, there's, there's uh, the policy for the users, and then there's also the policy of how the committee itself does its work. Um, and I'm going to assume that at least some things have probably changed there a little bit because of the scale. I mean, just the number of people they now have to have working in the committee. Um, but I know that uh, uh, the volunteers have also talked publicly about the work in terms of, you know, how they... Um, you know, review things, the things are always reviewed by at least two people. Um, and, and, and it always has been. Um, and so, the, but it probably goes through a, a variety of different vetting systems before people um, complaints are answered or they contact uh, people about things. So, but more than that, I really can't say because I'm actually part of that committee. How do you think that OTW's work in fan fiction in general, has changed the way fans form and exist in communities? Well, this is a very interesting question, and I'm going to have perhaps an unexpected answer, which is that I don't think it actually has. Hmm. Um, I think it would be very difficult to prove a direct connection between the OTW's work and the evolution of fan work practices. Um, Although the growth of our projects and the greater awareness among fans of the OTW has been you know, rewarding to see, we have to also consider how much else has changed in the past 10 years. I mean, well, and I, I shouldn't even say 10 years, it's been like you know, over 14 years now. Um, 
And one factor I think of is internationalization. Um, fan practices have always been international and they, they um, you know, fans have reached out to one another in different countries and sometimes across language barriers. Uh, for example, I think of the practice of fan dubs um, where fans form communities to translate anime works. Um, but as the internet has penetrated across economic lines within and among countries, it's facilitated a greater level of exchange and connection. And we can see how certain internet platforms are a big part of this. Um, I personally believe that Tumblr took off for fans both because it was designed to be primarily visual uh, and also designed to limit discussion. So if you had difficulty saying something, you weren't really expected to there. Um, it was a, a huge boon for fan artists and the popularization of gift sets, but you know, people could participate without much language use. And that made it easier for second language users or younger users or casual users to interact as well as for fandom topics to you know, merge with wider conversations that were going on in other user groups you know, and wider cultural interests. Um, so while the OTWs try to be conscious of its widespread audience, I don't think we can attribute anything we've done to the crossing of those barriers. Um, instead, I think it's the existing cross-cultural engagement of fans that was happening in 2007, which was built into the expectations for the OTW and AO3. Um, similarly, the popularization of fan works uh, has come from both accidental discovery on commonly used platforms, you know, such as Facebook and its predecessors, um, and the way the fans are connecting with the news media and canon content creators through places like Twitter. Um, yet Twitter launched only the year before the OTW did. Uh, Facebook only became open to the general public in 2006 and Tumblr in 2007. And they all grew at a much faster pace than we did. Um, even now, there are many parts of even the creative side of fandom that have never heard of the archive of our own. Um, so, oh, and the free use of, and eventually the massive audience for YouTube um, did far more to change things for fan works. Um, not only were quite a few fan vids eventually shared on the site, but it popularized all kinds of mashups and audience-centered commentary on TV, movies, games, uh, so that you no longer had to be involved in fandom or to be a serious fan of anything to access those kinds of analyses or works or bits of the canon content itself that previously was you know, not very easily found online. Um, and if there's one argument you could make as to how the OTW has not been particularly effective in influencing fandom, it's in what I see as the rise of paid fan works. Um, this is also not new. Uh, for example, artists have worked on commissions since fandom's early days. And there were also often people who attempted to get payment for their works in one way or another. Um, and there's also been a historic pipeline of fans who have turned pro. Um, However, I think it's more common now for fans to ask for payment for their work or for people to provide financial support, whereas once this was severely frowned upon in many fan communities. Um, the OTW is advertising free and non-commercial in all its projects, uh, and it doesn't permit people to solicit payments on the archive, uh, but it's a continuing problem that keeps being reported. Mm -hmm. So even, even this commercialization, though, is, is something I see as 
part of a more general move culturally, uh, rather than something that's happening just in fandom. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the era of gig work and the side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at podcast creators or even journalists, they're using a mix of things from subscription models to tip jars and sponsorships and crowdfunding, et cetera. I think the only thing that's held commercialism of user-generated content back for so long uh, is because of the limitations in micropayment options and right. currency conversion problems. Uh, I think if it was only a cultural practice standing in the way, we'd have seen a lot more fan work go commercial much sooner. It almost sounds like you're saying it's made an extra space and an extra tool for people to do things that they were doing already. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the changes that I think have been happening in fandom have been a result of outside forces, not inside forces, you know, and, and I see the OTW and its project as inside forces. It's stuff that's coming from within fandom, from fans. It's created by fans. It's run by fans. You know, fans continue to develop it, you know, so I think a lot of those other things are just, you know, living in the internet age, honestly. Mm -hmm. So that's more, uh, uh, OTW is more of a ground floor sort of thing that, uh, other platforms and, uh, ways of distributing sort of build upon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, uh, in some ways you could think of it as, as a bit of a throwback really. I mean, I, I can see that <laughs> back when things were free back in the <laughs> old internet. <laughs> yep. Um, free and more you, audience centered. Yeah. Yeah. When you could get famous on YouTube <laughs> without a major production team. <laughs> So what's the long-term vision for um, OTW's projects and um, what are the fandom conditions that it seeks to either create, preserve, and or expand? Um, You know, especially as a longtime volunteer, I think that the main concern for those in the organization is just its continued existence. Mm. Um, We're doing fine financially right now. But I think that there are a number of challenges that are primarily organizational. Um, We're going to need some paid staff. And to do that, we're going to have to raise far more money than is currently being donated. Mm -hmm. Um, Our budget has averaged around $300,000 US in the past few years. And that mostly goes to things like tools and technical infrastructure. So to add salaries is going to be a huge change. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I should add that nothing I'm saying about this is reflecting on OTW policy or any particular decision, um, just that it's a conversation that's occurred at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, we are all volunteers, we uh, also have a lot of turnover, um, more yeah. than the average workplace. And anytime you have high turnover, it puts a lot of demands on leadership, um, which has to keep recruiting and training. Uh, plus there may be institutional knowledge um, lost if key people or longtime volunteers depart with potentially no one to replace them. Mm-hmm. Uh, during our history, there have been projects and committees that have folded when there was no one to champion them or to continue working on them. Um, next year, our academic journal is gonna be going through a major transition um, because the two editors who created it and have run it for 14 years will be stepping down. And I believe they might be leaving the OTW. Mm. Um, The new editors are in place and they're training to take over. Um, And luckily there are a lot of people with specific experience working with academic journals and publications who are in fandom. 
Um, and it's also the sort of volunteer work that has a day job application. So, you know, you might think of um, lawyers who do pro bono work as an example. Um, so there's more incentive to do that kind of volunteering. Uh, but we struggle a lot more to get people with IT experience in systems yeah. uh, or coding or roles like accounting or other specialized skills. Um, the AO3 launched with a lot of plans of what it wanted to offer on the site, such as um, multimedia hosting and different language interfaces. And after 10 years, a number of those features are still waiting because the rapid growth of the site has meant that we have both a greater need for volunteers, um, as well as a prioritization of keeping the site stable and delivering properly on all its current features. Mm -hmm. So, you know, plans for new options take a back seat. Right. Um, I know that everyone wants to get there, but there is no timetable for when a number of things might happen. And um, when we do implement new features, we're also going to have to consider how those things affect staffing, which has had to ramp up a lot. Um, back when I came in during 2011, I think we had fewer than 400 volunteers. And now a single committee might have that many. Jeez. So <laughs> especially with us living in an era of internet time and rapid technological transition, just continuing to exist and offer a satisfying user experience with the projects is, I think, the central goal. And a worthy goal it is. <laughs> so say we all. <laughs> um, so part of uh, OTW's work includes the Open Doors Project, whose mission is to preserve fan works for the future including Fanish projects that might otherwise be lost due to lack of time, interest, or resources on the part of the current maintainer. How are you alerted to other fan fiction archives that need saving for open doors? And what kind of Fanish works are included under this umbrella? So the majority of what Open Doors has worked with since 2009 has been digital text works. Mm -hmm. um, although we also help preserve physical fan works uh, in partnership with the University of Iowa Special Collections. Oh. Um, there has also been fan art and some multimedia included in some of the archives, and those are hosted as well. Uh, in fact, the most recent archive announced just, I think it was a couple of days ago, um, is an easing archive, which is going to include a number of images. Oh. Um, but in terms of how we're alerted, it's, uh, it's sometimes the maintainer of those archives who comes to us to ask for help, but it may also be a user who says, I haven't been able to access so-and-so's site for the last two years, and can you help save it? Uh, in those cases, we need to get some contact information for the site owner, and we'll then take it from there and seeing if they're willing to work with us in preserving the content and then making it available in its own collection on AO3. Uh, and this work <laughs> often goes very slowly. Um, over the past three years, the average has been about 2,500 works transferred each year. Um, but in 2017, it was 42,000 works. <laughs> it all oh depends on whether the process must be manual or it can be done through an import tool. And uh, few people are familiar with the scope of how huge Open Doors projects are. Like one archive import can take several years to complete, and there are over 100 steps, all of which are very detail oriented in the process. And each volunteer juggles multiple archive imports um, simultaneously. So it can be really unpredictable when you're waiting on other people and there's not much to do versus when tasks for all of your imports come in at once. And training also takes a long time because there are so many steps we need to train people on. So we're talking about 
four months of one-on-one walkthroughs a week with a mentor before people graduate from training. So it can take some time between when an archive is announced as being imported to when it's actually completed. Yeah. I mean, and depending on how much cooperation you get, how it needs to be done. Um, I mean, I've tried to get in contact. I did some project management for websites and try try. People don't often even know who their, who, who, where their server is or how mm-hmm. to contact the person who's in charge of it. Right. So, like I can only imagine like, try, especially one that's been abandoned for a while. I have a few questions about legal stuff that sure. I know you have gotten answers from the legal department for us. I have. Um, thank you. So what's the most common type of legal defense that needs to be provided? And um, what do people come to you for help with the most often? So uh, just repeating, the chair of our legal committee, Betsy Rosenblatt, sent me some replies to questions about the Legal Advocacy Project. So I'm reading her responses here. All right. Um, And so this is from her. She says, there's a few separate questions here. Uh, First, we should say that the OTW is not a law firm. That is, we don't represent individual clients and we don't provide legal advice. Hmm. We do give a lot of people information about law and fan works, and we help them find lawyers to represent them when they do need advice. Um, There are a few reasons people come to us for help. The most common are questions from fans who have had their fan works challenged or taken down based on allegations of infringement and questions from fans who have had their fan works taken and sold for a profit by third parties. Uh, We also get people asking us about how to avoid legal challenges for commercial fan work projects, but those are outside of what we do. We're focused on non-commercial fan works. Our mission is specifically to protect fan works from legal challenge and commercial exploitation. As for how to define the line between fair use fan fiction and copyright infringement, the law of fair use is very fact specific. Uh, The law provides a list of factors for courts to use to determine whether a particular use of a copyrighted work is fair. That means that while the law provides a set of factors to consider, it doesn't draw a bright line rule. The first factor asks whether the use is transformative and whether the use is commercial. Uses that transform the meaning, message, or purpose of the underlying copyrighted work are more likely to be fair uses. That means the law favors commentary, criticisms, parodies, and uses with a different artistic message from the underlying work. It also means the law favors non-commercial uses over commercial ones. Neither of these answers the fair question entirely. A transformative use can potentially be infringing and a commercial use can be non-infringing. In fact, all of the major cases finding fair use are about commercial uses, but courts treat the transformative use factor is particularly powerful. The more a work transforms its source material, the more likely it is to be a fair use. Another factor asks how much of the underlying work it uses. A use that copies a large portion of the underlying work or copies the heart of the work is less likely to be fair. A use that copies only a small portion of the underlying work is more likely to be fair. And another factor asks whether the use completes in the market with the underlying work or with something the copyright holder would be likely to do or authorize. Mm-hmm. If it's a market substitute for something the copyright holder would be likely to do, then it's more likely to infringe. Something that competes with the copyright holder's market is harming the copyright holder financially. On the other hand, something that doesn't compete with the copyright holder's market is just expanding the expression in the world. This means that if it's something the copyright holder wouldn't do or allow, 
then it's more likely to be fair. Mm. This may seem counterintuitive because it means that the more a copyright holder is likely to object to a use, the more likely that use is to be fair. But this factor exists for the same reason that the law favors commentary, criticism, and parody. Those things aren't market substitutes for copyrighted works. But a copyright holder might try to use copyright to censor things like negative reviews or unflattering parodies, and that would be bad for free expression. So these factors boil down to the OTW's position that transformative non-commercial fan works are fair use. Other sorts of fan works may be fair use, but they require more case-by-case analysis. Right. Um, so how can fans protect themselves and fan works in general from uh, legal or policy actions that threaten the ability to create them? Uh, again, from Betsy. Uh, one of the reasons that OTW exists is because it can be hard for individual fans to take action that will make a difference. Uh, fans whose works are unfairly taken down can send what is called a counter notice to have their works put back up. Uh, fans whose works are taken and sold without permission can issue their own takedown notices. Fans can continue the traditional practice of putting disclaimers on their work, giving credit to their sources, which may not make a legal difference, but shows good faith and may protect from some sorts of trademark challenges. Uh, but on a larger scale, there are two things fans can do. One is to keep making and sharing transformative works. One of the biggest changes in many years the OTW has existed is that fandom has changed from something that many saw as secretive and sketchy to something that is widespread, appreciated, and celebrated. That's huge. It used to be that a congressperson may never have known they knew someone fanish. Now most members of Congress probably know people who make and share fan works. Maybe their friends, maybe their kids, maybe themselves. The more lawmakers understand and appreciate fans, the less they can deny the personal, personal and social value of fan works. Uh, fans can protect themselves by using platforms that respect them. One of the key reasons the OTW was created was to have an outlet for fans where the fans own the servers. That is, there are no corporate interests looking to exploit fans and fan works for money and no advertisers trying to control what fans can and can't do. We've seen over the years, going back to fanfiction.net and through Tumblr, Amazon, and other sites, that most for-profit corporations aren't particularly interested in making or maintaining spaces for fan works if those spaces are gonna be challenging, controversial, or unprofitable to maintain. Sites have incentives to take down works when they get a takedown notice, even if those works are fair use. Right. That doesn't mean fans shouldn't use whatever platforms they want but they should know that corporations aren't necessarily their friends. There are also more focused things people can do. All over the world, lawmakers keep thinking about changing the law in ways that may make things easier or harder for fans and for the platforms like AO3 that allow fans to connect and share. These actions aren't just about copyright law. They're also about trademark law, rights of publicity, telecom law, internet free speech, and even antitrust and competition law. A lot of lawmakers have heavy incentives to make things harder for fans because they get a lot of their lobbying information and campaign donations from entertainment companies whose priorities are very different from fans. Entertainment companies want to stop piracy and fans don't want piracy either. Fans are good customers for entertainment companies, but entertainment companies are in it for the money and often see fans and fandom as acceptable collateral damage in their lobbying attempts to maximize profits eliminate piracy and maintain control over how people perceive their products. The OTW and its allies, nonprofits that focus on internet law, intellectual property and free expression are on the lookout for attempts to make the world less fan friendly. 
Sometimes we encourage people to get involved by, for example, sending us their experiences so we can use them in advocacy filings or contacting their lawmakers. Fans can take part in those efforts and can be on the lookout for fan unfriendly laws on their own too. We have a great legal team. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like you're not terribly affected by the whims of uh, credit card companies. <laughs> like some platforms I may be aware of. Um, Some platforms we are all unfortunately too aware of. Exactly. (laughs) I feel like I'm starting to understand what your organization does, at least on, you know, that, that iceberg, top of the iceberg level. Yes. (laughs) The part above the water. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Clinging to the ice with all of my might thank you for what you do. Um, I'm having a great time and I know a lot of other people who are having a very good time with, um, with fan fiction and being able to form communities and share our work there. Well, we are, as I said, all volunteers and all fans. So we're also our own customers. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Getting high off the supply as they say. Um, Great. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to share or anything you would like to direct listeners to? Um, Yes, I would actually. Uh, You know, we've talked about, you know, the Legal Advocacy Project. We've talked about Open Doors. We've talked about the archive. Um, You know, I've mentioned in passing our academic journal, Transformative Works and Cultures. Um, And one of the things I don't think we have mentioned is FanLore, which is our wiki project. Um, And I would Hardly encourage people to, at the very least, go check it out, um, you know, and, and read some of the things that are there. Uh, I, th- I personally think the fan lore is a lot of fun to browse um, because I guarantee you, you will not leave it without learning something. <laughs> um, even if you've been in fandom a long time, I guarantee it. Um, so, you know, there's um, the, the thing is, the fan lore is like the archive. I mean, it grows because people contribute to it, and there are you know, uh, a lot of people over the years who have definitely tried to at least, you know, get entry started on different things, um, but they could use uh, a lot of people contributing their own experiences and things they know about in fandom to that site. Um, and also, uh, like I said, you know, it is uh, a lot of fun to browse. And one of the things you can do uh, to start out at FanLore is actually to create a page for yourself there. Um, you know, if you're a fan and you're in fandom, I mean, you're a part of the history. I mean, the thing about fan lore is that most most fandom wikis, um, they focus on canon. You know, they, uh, you know, people are probably familiar with places like Wikipedia. Um, there's lots of, you know, I, I know the Merlin wiki and so forth. Um, and in fact, they may even refer to those pretty often because, you know, they may be looking up facts or different things uh, from uh, from canon that they want to use in their works. Uh, but fan lore is not about the canon. Fan lore is about the fans. Um, fan lore is about fandom. Fan lore is about fandom works. You know, things like um, gloss. It has a great glossary, you know, of all the terms the fans use, uh, which are sometimes different across different fandoms for the same thing. Um, and uh, it's the history of what fans have done. And that is, as far as I know, not collected anywhere else. Um, and it can be, you know, really significant. For example, you know, we were talking about changes in, in certain platforms. And as we know, a lot of people have been migrating from one platform to the other and looking for new homes uh, for places that will serve them better. And a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, fans can lose touch with each other. Um, they don't mm-hmm. know where somebody they, you know, used to be in touch with or whose work they used to see has gone. 
Um, and FanLore can be very useful in that purpose because if you have your own page on FanLore, you can put links to wherever you currently are there. Oh. And so people who go looking for you can find you uh, when you've disappeared from a particular site. Um, so, you know, it, it does the history of different fan activities. Um, for example, if you're getting into a new fandom um, and you want to know, uh, for example, like what are the communities for this fandom? What are the activities for it? You know, does it have a fest? Does it have a challenge? Uh, what are some of the major works, you know, for this fandom or for a particular ship or something like that? You can go to FanLore and look it up because that's the sort of thing it records. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, and it's also great for outside people, for academics and for news media people who want to find out about a particular topic. In fact, I got a request just earlier today about something, which unfortunately I do not know very much about the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fa- there is a FanLore entry for it. It could be more comprehensive. And I, this is another reason that I wish that more people would contribute to it, because I know there are people out there who know all about this thing. And if they would go to FanLore and add their knowledge to it, you know, we'd have uh, more comprehensive entries. So, so yes, I would absolutely uh, encourage everybody to go take a look at FanLore.org and, um, you know, poke around it and uh, see if there's uh, something that might interest you in adding to it. So are there, uh, is it kind of like Wikipedia in that if there's some kind of controversy, people will like put entries for that as well? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, there, there are definitely histories of controversies, uh, you know, in it. For example, there's a pretty comprehensive entry for race fail, which occurred back in, gosh, I'm going to say maybe it was 2009. Um, I'm trying to remember what year it actually was, but um, there, there are, yes, definitely entries for different controversies. Um, the thing that's also important about FanLore, which is different from other wikis, uh, for example, I mean, we all know about Wikipedia. Um, and the, the thing that's special about FanLore is it operates from what it calls a plural point of view policy, mm-hmm. which is that there is no one experience or one point of view on a particular event or on a particular thing. Um, so, you know, if, and, and you can see it actually too, if you look through the entries, there are often, you know, different variations of takes uh, that people had on particular things. And those are all included because that's what happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, people have different opinions on things. People, uh, you know, in, in having a discussion are going to bring up different points. So um, it's a, so it's a plural point of view, not only in terms of, you know, documenting different uh, aspects of a debate or a controversy, but also in terms of, you know, people can go in and add their own information about that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, I will definitely link that on the website in the notes. And um, I, that must be especially valuable if you're coming into a, a, a very old fandom, I would think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I'll, I'll probably play around with that a little bit later. Um, well, great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for asking. You can find Hybrid Pub Scout online, hybridpubscout.com, on Facebook at Hybrid Pub Scout, on Instagram at Hybrid Pub Scout Pod, on Twitter at Hybrid Pub Scout. And thanks for listening. Thanks for giving a rip about books.